You can turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, we have been, uh, we've been looking at some different themes that show up in these very first chapters of the Bible, themes that are kind of foundational for how we think about the world, how we think about God, how we think about our lives. And we're going to be talking today about another one of those themes, and in particular today we're going to be talking about the value of life, the value of life, the value of human life in particular. Now, there's a, there's a really, really famous illustration that, that I've heard pastors use before when it comes to the value of life, uh, and it's, I, I think it, I'm, I read this week that it originated in an old Ann Landers column, for those of you who remember Ann Landers, that was a long time ago, I know. Uh, I first heard this in a sermon way back in the mid-80s, and, and the illustration goes like this, maybe you've heard it. Uh, there's a professor at a world-renowned medical school. When I first heard the illustration, it happened to be UCLA. I don't know if that was the actual school, or, but it's a hypothetical problem. And the professor poses this ethical problem to his first-year medical students. He says, a pregnant woman comes into your office, and here is her family history. Uh, the baby's father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. They already have four children. The first one is blind. The second one died. The third one is deaf, the fourth one has tuberculosis, the mother is now pregnant again with a fifth child, and the parents come to you for advice. They're trying to decide whether to, to have an abortion or whether to have the child. And he says to the medical students, what do you advise her? And he splits them up into groups, and they go off, and they have discussions among themselves, and they get back, and all of the groups come back to the professor and report that they would recommend that in this case the woman go ahead and have the abortion. At which point the professor said, congratulations, you have just killed Ludwig von Beethoven. And that's, you've probably heard that, maybe you've heard that before, I don't know. It's a pretty powerful illustration. It kind of pulls you in, and then it has that sort of, you know, mic drop moment at the end when you find out that it's Beethoven, because Beethoven obviously had a pretty influential and productive life. And personally, I'm a big fan of Beethoven. If I had to go to a concert, I would pick Beethoven over the Beatles every time. Right? I'm weird like that, but I love Beethoven. So just for selfish reasons, I am happy that Beethoven's mom decided to choose life. But I wonder if you might see a problem with this illustration, because there's a big problem with it. Here's the problem. What about those of us who are not Beethoven? Right? I mean, what if I never write a symphony? What if I never invent anything useful in my life or accomplish anything particularly grand? What if my life just isn't all that productive? You know, what if I just kind of live? What, what if I try a lot of things and almost all of them fail? What if I never get married and raise a family so I, I never leave any, any personal biological legacy on the earth or I don't continue my name? What if, what if I never have any kind of meaningful or successful career? What if I'm not all that useful to other people? In fact, what if I'm kind of a drain on society? You know, what if I, what if I use up a lot more resources than I contribute when it comes to things like medical care and financial assistance and, you know, carbon footprint? What if, what if I end up being a net taker instead of a net giver in the world? In fact, what if I'm not really all that good of a person? What if I'm kind of a jerk? You know, what, what if my life on balance ends up causing more pain to people and more burden to people than it does causing good to people? What if I was the unborn child in the illustration? Then what would you advise the medical students to say? What should that mom have decided? 
It gets to the question of this. What determines whether a human life, any life, not just unborn life, what, what, what determines whether a human life has value and is worth caring for and protecting? Who assigns our worth? Where does it come from? What about you? Are you worth anything? I mean that. Are, are, are you worth anything even on days when you don't feel like you're worth anything? Days when you're, you don't feel like you're contributing a whole lot to society and you get to the end of the day and, and you think, what did I do with myself today? I pretty much just you know, took in a lot of oxygen molecules and converted them to carbon dioxide. That was my day. Are you worth anything? Does it matter that you're you? Does it matter that you're here? Does it matter? Is there any consequence that you're even alive? Let's go ahead and read today's scripture before I ask any more weird questions. Okay, Genesis 9, 1 to 6. This is the end, toward the end of the Noah story, and it's not the most important, or it's, it's, it's not the most famous part of the Noah account, but it's, it's pretty foundational for a lot of things in the rest of the Bible, even though we kind of skip quickly over it. It's the first six verses of Genesis 9. The ark has landed. Um, God hasn't shown the rainbow yet, but he's, he's talking to Noah and telling some things to his family. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man." From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Last week, we talked about this whole story of Noah and the great flood, and we identified the theme of judgment. But, but there's one thing that we discovered last week, and that is this, that, that even though the sinfulness of mankind is quite considerable to say the least, we found out that God will never allow humanity to get, to get so sinful and, and so broken, that God will never allow humanity to get to 100% sinfulness, to be completely beyond repair, that to get as sinful as we have the potential to become. It is true that we are all sinners, every single person on the face of the earth. It's true that we all need salvation and we can't save ourselves. It's true that our sin has broken us individually and as a society in many, many different ways. But God will never completely abandon us to our sin. He will always have a righteous remnant of people on the earth. And of course, Noah is the great example here. And later on, we find out Abraham and Moses and some other people fill that, that void. And these people aren't sinless. Noah is not a sinless person. But, but these people are righteous in the sense that they are following God's ways to some real extent. They're God followers. So that's one way that God is going to mitigate or, or lessen the influence of evil on the world. But there's something else that God is going to do now. In addition to, to preserving one God-fearing family here, God's going to do something else. Because humans, if you think about it, humans haven't become any less sinful just because of the flood. Humans still have the human nature. Humans are still broken. Humans are still fallen. And it's not going to be that long, and the next couple of chapters bear this out, it's not going to be that long before sin gets real overwhelming again. It gets really bad. Now, God has made this promise to Noah and his family and his descendants, we saw last week with that rainbow, that he will never again wipe humanity from the face of the earth the way he did with the great flood. But there's one more safeguard God is going to put in place in these verses here, and that's what we see at the beginning of, of chapter 9. God, for the first time, for the first time, 
God gives human beings the responsibility to do a little bit of self-policing. See, God says that I'm going to require the life of man for, for shedding man's blood. God isn't going to zap people from heaven if they commit murder. No, God is going to people and saying, your responsibility to put this in place here. This past Tuesday, many of you, probably most of you, 18 and older, took part in the national ritual by which we select the people that we approve to govern us, right? Or the people who we maybe don't approve, but they're not as bad as the other guy, to govern us. And on my bout, I don't know about yours, there were a lot of pages. Did you notice that? Especially when you were doing those judges. Like page after page of judges up for election along with them. There's commissioners and school board members and soil and water conservation people. You name it, we vote for it. We have a very sophisticated form of government in the United States. Would you agree? Maybe a little bit too sophisticated sometimes. But even though it's not very sophisticated here, the legitimacy of human government, the legitimacy, the, val- the fact that it's valid that we would actually have authority over one another in a kind of governmental way, that's established in, yes, a much less sophisticated form way back here in the ninth chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9. We don't find out anything here about the proper size of government, the proper form of government. There's no Democrats and Republicans and independents here. This is a very, very, very simple beginning. But even in this very primitive form, God gives us one guiding principle when it comes to governing ourselves, and it's the first guiding principle we ever see in the Bible, and it's this. The first role of government is to protect human life. To protect human life. We see this because there are punishments put in place here for the taking of a human life. Now, in this case, it's the death penalty. We'll talk about that in a second. But the principle here is this, that human life, human life is so uniquely valuable that when it comes to intentional murder, only, the lo- only by the loss of the life of the murderer can justice be served. That's the principle. Now, you need to know something. Throughout the Old Testament, there are lots of qualifications put on this, and the death penalty is not always called for. The Old Testament laws make very careful distinction between things like accidental death and negligence and intentional homicide. The Scriptures also reference the right to self-defense. They know about that. But one thing that they are perfectly consistent on is this, that the deliberate taking of a human life outside of these exceptions is a crime. It is a moral wrong. It is a serious crime. And as a matter of fact, it's a crime against God Himself. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the passage. Why is murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? Because you might have just killed Beethoven by mistake. Because of the great potential productivity of human life that you're snuffing out? Because people are useful? Because people are good? No. Murder is wrong specifically because a human being, every human being, is created in the image of God. That's why murder is wrong. You have worth. Can I say that again? For those of you who may be doubting it this morning, you have worth, you have value, and your life needs to be valued and protected not because you're useful, not because you're productive or smart or wealthy or good-looking or athletic or talented or because everybody else loves you. That's not where your worth comes from. In fact, you may have been rejected by a lot of people, maybe even people in your own family. You may undergo constant criticism in your life, even abuse, leading you to insecurity and and fear and self-doubt and even self-loathing. But your life still has value. It still has value. In fact, your life still has the same exact amount of value as the smartest, godliest, friendliest, wealthiest, and most talented person that you know. Why? 
because God has put a stamp on you, his very image. And that stamp says a couple of things. First, it says, I made this. But even beyond that, it says, and I have put a piece of myself into this. I have put something of myself, my character, into this very creation. This is something that only humans have. But it's also something that every human has. Every human. This includes people who perhaps don't express all the unique facets of humanity as clearly as others. In other words, people with whom the image of God doesn't come through quite as loudly. Severely mentally handicapped people. People with dementia. Newborns and infants. These are people who may not function at the highest level on the scale of human productivity, but they still carry the image of God. And so they carry the incredibly high value of something in which God has placed a piece of his own character and likeness. And so an act of violence against any human being becomes an act of violence against God himself. By the way, this is a distinctly biblical idea. I don't think we realize this in America because the, the, the idea that every human being has equal value, it's self-evident to us, right? Even our document, Thomas Jefferson said it was self-evident. But you know what? It hasn't always been self-evident. This is the influence of the gospel, the influence of the Bible. It has not been that way throughout history in all cultures. Not every culture has believed this. In fact, most cultures over the course of history have seen people as having different value, different intrinsic value, depending on their place in society. You might think today of maybe the castes of India. Or you could think back just, you know, 70, 80 years ago to Nazi Germany. They're probably the primary modern example of this. Certain people in Nazi Germany, those with handicaps and deformities, those with lower IQ, and of course those of different ethnic backgrounds, were considered to be subhuman. They were worthy only of doing experiments on like animals or exterminating them, exterminating them for the good of society. That's what can happen when the foundational biblical concept that every human being has intrinsic value, when that is forgotten or ignored or maybe not even learned in the first place. Now, let me take a few minutes and talk with you about abortion. Okay? You just started paying attention, didn't you? We are not discussing this to make a political statement. If you have been here for any length of time, you know what I think about politics from the pulpit. All right? But I've noticed as we've gone through this foundation series that we brush up against some what I'd call worldview issues that sometimes have a bearing on political stances and controversies of the day and things like that. And I have decided to discuss these things with you this time and to not shy away from them like we sometimes might do. I do this not to start arguments. I do this not to make political points, certainly. What I want to do is I want to give you a framework, a biblical framework for thinking about these issues because it's almost impossible not to get drawn into certain discussions about things like this from time to time. If you're sitting around this Thanksgiving with your Uncle Fred from Michigan, I don't know if you have one of those, but if you did, okay, and maybe he doesn't know the Lord, you are much less likely to get into a discussion about Jesus on the cross than you are to get into a discussion about some hot-button political issue of the day. But maybe that issue does border in some ways on spiritual things, and so maybe one conversation can lead to another. And as Christians, it's very important for us, especially today, to know not just what we believe, but why we believe it, where it comes from. 
And I want you, among other things, to have an idea of some of the complexities and some of the difficulties in, in discussions like this and arguments like this so that you can think about them carefully and honestly. Because I will tell you, a lot of Christians have nothing but knee-jerk responses to questions like this, and they don't speak well for Jesus or the gospel because they've never really thought the thing through. They, they come off as closed-minded and clueless, and I do not want us to be closed-minded and clueless because it doesn't help in our conversations with people about the Lord. Now, you have probably seen some of the same Facebook posts that I have, and they go like this, to something like this. Here's everything that Jesus had to say about abortion. And the next line is what? Nothing. Blank. And I get it. That's absolutely correct. Jesus never said a single word about abortion. He also didn't say a single word about human trafficking or cannibalism. But we probably maybe have some issues with those things, right? So maybe like a lot of other Facebook arguments, that one isn't exactly airtight, and yet still we have to admit that nowhere in the Bible do we see a direct reference to the deliberate termination of a pregnancy. You can look for chapter and verse all day long and it does not exist. So bear with me for just a moment and let me drag you into the weeds for just about two minutes, then we'll come out, I promise. But let me give some of the ex example of some of the complexities that you'll run into if you get into a really serious discussion of this. For instance, there is one passage in the Law of Moses, it's in Exodus chapter 21, that speaks to a situation where two men are fighting. And as these men fight, they accidentally strike a pregnant woman and causing something to happen to her baby. And the punishment that results is only a monetary fine. The, the problem, the confusion comes from the different translations of the Hebrew phrase describing what happens to the woman's baby. Some scholars translate miscarriage. Other scholars translate it as premature birth. And there are those who would say, well, this is a miscarriage. If this causes a miscarriage, then the fact that it only warrants a fine shows that fetal life is not fully human. On the other hand, if it's translated premature birth, then we note that the passage goes on to say that if any further harm takes place, the unborn child is treated exactly like any other human being. So which is it? Well, literally what it says is this, so that her child departs from her. Now, I've done, a, I've done a very, very deep dive into the literature of this and the translations and everything. And if you like, I can have a two-hour long discussion with you of the fine points. But honestly, I will tell you this. There are valid reasons for both translations. But even if this is a miscarriage, and by the way, that's a really big if given the language used. Note, first of all, that what happens to the baby is an accidental death or maybe a death due to negligence, which often carries a lighter punishment than a deliberate act. Sometimes, yes, just a fine. Secondly, I note that the word for what the woman loses here is the word for child. It's not the technical term for a fetus, which exists, but it's not used here. So even a miscarriage here is seen as the loss of a child. It's seen as the loss of a life. It's seen as the loss of a, of a human person made in God's image. This is consistent with how unborn life is presented throughout the Bible whether it's a woman grieving a miscarriage, whether it's a person being, a, a psalmist being formed in his mother's womb, whether it's the preborn John the Baptist doing a little in utero dance of joy when he comes within a few feet of the embryonic Jesus. All, the, the fetus is always recognized as a human being, always recognized as a full-fledged member of the human race with its own identity and personhood, which if you think about it makes some sense the more and more we learn about the biology and the genetics of fetal development, right? 
the genetic evidence tells us each unborn baby has its own specific DNA right from the moment of conception or in the case of some identical twins about four days later. You can also compare the biological data. The heart, the brain, the eyes of a child are all distinguishable by the fourth week of pregnancy now. By the twelfth week before most moms are even showing, the small person can change position, respond to pain, suck his or her thumb, and have an attack of the hiccups. So from a biological standpoint, there is little difference between terminating a fetus and killing a newborn infant. Of course, now there have been many, many efforts made to determine that difference, to maximize the difference or to figure out, make some kind of determination what constitutes full human life versus what constitutes partial human life or potential human life on the other hand. But most of these criteria have not been biological, they've been psychological. Things like the ability to be fully aware of your existence, to be able to make conscious choices, to survive independently in the world. The problem is that by these definitions, there are a lot of other people in the world who would not be considered fully human, including many of the elderly, the comatose, the profoundly handicapped, not to mention newborns themselves. They don't get along very well by themselves in the world. So ultimately what we're left with is, is this argument that since the biblical and biological evidence is not 100% slam dunk for everyone, it falls to this, that what we'll say is that the only the woman, only the pregnant woman is qualified to assign value or to deny value to the life inside of her. Because today, the way we look at things in our culture is that personal autonomy trumps everything. The ability to be your own person, to control your own life, to control your own body, to control your own destiny, to, to be the captain of your soul, the independence that we have as human beings trumps every other right, even the right to life. That's what we're looking at today. What do we say to this? What do we say to this? Well, one thing we could say is this. This is in the words of a famous politician who started out extremely pro-choice and sponsored some pro-abortion legislation and then changed his mind on further reflection and actually wrote a treatise on this while in office. And he said this, anyone who doesn't feel sure whether we're talking about a second human life should clearly give life the benefit of the doubt. If you don't know whether the body is alive or dead, you would never bury it. Now, we in the church are called to exercise compassion toward women who find themselves in an extremely difficult and sometimes almost untenable position of an unwanted pregnancy. It's a very serious thing, and we need to look for ways to support them as well as their babies in every single way that we can. But we are also called to speak truth to them in love, not just for the sake of the unborn child, though that's true, but for her own sake as well as someone who might be soon facing the agonizing guilt and regret that have haunted so many women who have taken this decision upon themselves and found that they've been stepping into the shoes of God when they did it. Because only God determines the value of human life. So to summarize, the weight of the biblical evidence supported by the weight of increasing weight of genetic and biological evidence indicates a developing fetus is a full-fledged human being. And all the biblical evidence, all of it agrees the fetus has intrinsic value as an individual life and that to deliberately end that life is morally wrong. And if that be the case, then it becomes the proper role of human government as established by God to take steps to protect that life. There. Now, since this is being live-streamed, I have just blown every chance I'll ever have to be President of the United States. <laughs> so, while we're at it, let me take a moment and talk about a couple other applications, all right? One of them is this. Unborn life is not the only life that's in danger of being stripped of its value. The same thing is happening to many elderly people, 
many infirm people who have supposedly outlived their usefulness or whose life has become so difficult that they question whether it's worth living anymore. And yes, you may find yourself in that position at some point. The increase in the Western world of the practice of assisted suicide is going up radically, and studies have consistently shown that in areas where assisted suicide has become legal, all suicide goes up, not just assisted suicide. It happens everywhere. Does a person have the right of autonomy over his own existence and his own life such that he has the authority to take his own life or her own life? What do you think? The writer Ernest Hemingway would have had no problem with this. Some of you know Hemingway's story. He believed that suicide was the right of every man, except he decided he didn't need any assistance. Here's what he wrote shortly before he took his own life. Hemingway wrote, what does a man care about? Staying healthy, working good, eating and drinking with his friends, enjoying himself in bed. I haven't any of them, none of them. So was Hemingway justified in taking that gun and ending his own life. Well, according to God's Word, Hemingway's last act was not so much an act of courageous defiance, but an act of stealing. He destroyed something created in the image of God. And and I am not saying here that people who take their own life don't go through terrible trials. Some of you know I have personal experience with this. Nor am I advancing the superstitious belief that suicide is the unforgivable sin because it's not. But when I am confronted by someone who is considering this choice, at some point I find myself reminding that person that it's wrong to take something that doesn't belong to you. Especially true for a Christian who is not only stamped with the image of God saying, this is mine, but then we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we are twice owned by God. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a passage that's all about our bodies. And in that passage, Paul says, you're not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. If all people are equal in value by virtue of God's image, then we need to keep in mind not only abortion, but things like euthanasia and, yes, even suicide. We also need to consider one more implication of this, and that is that racism is a cousin of abortion. Racism is a cousin of abortion, even though the people who are so vociferously opposed to one don't seem to talk a whole lot about the other one going either direction. Now, why do I say that? simply because both of them flow from the idea, either spoken or unspoken, that some human life is less valuable than other human life. Ironically, this very chapter of Scripture, Genesis chapter 9, was used throughout history to promote racism for centuries. Toward the end of the chapter, Noah does something stupid, and Noah's son Ham does something to grossly dishonor his father. And as a result, Noah pronounces a curse on Ham's son Canaan saying that Canaan's descendants would serve the descendants of Noah's other two sons. And since Ham's descendants ended up mostly populating Africa, this passage was used for a long time to justify the enslavement of African people as something ordained by God. This is despite the fact that the descendants of Canaan, who was the one that received the curse, didn't even go to Africa. You know where they went? To Canaan. They were the Canaanites. They were those people that became so dreadfully evil that they ended up being displaced by the children of Israel. But that didn't stop people from not only justifying African slavery, but even concluding that black Africans were somehow less human than other people. Now, most of us would strongly deny, I think, that we have any racist beliefs or feelings. At the same time, I believe that probably most of us have some assumptions we need to take a second look at from time to time. 
And I would say that probably all of us need to find the courage to say a challenging word when a conversation that we are in takes a certain turn. When someone uses language that effectively dehumanizes the members of another ethnic group. Usually by making some careless generalization about how all black people act or how the typical Mexican might respond or how all Asians are like this or whatever it might be when it would never occur to the person to say that about white people. And when this happens, I know that I'm always torn because I'm a nice person, you know. I'm, I'm torn between the desire to be nice on one hand and not be seen as a moralistic scold and on the other hand to say, hey, do you have any idea how bigoted that just sounded? How prejudiced that just sounded? Do you, do you really feel that way? Usually that's all it takes. We, have all, we all have an instinct to identify with our tribe, right? I mean, we, to see the people who are most like us as individuals as individuals. That's how we see them. Whereas we tend to kind of label people from other groups, at least initially, as part of that group. At least until we get to know them, which some of us don't always take the time to do. I believe that God wants us to fight that natural inclination toward tribalism and to deliberately take his view, which is that every individual person has been created in his image, has equal value in his sight, and is worth our equal respect and consideration and friendship. Now, in the couple minutes we have left, let me just take a minute here before we close and talk about the first few verses, which we mostly skipped over and which are kind of weird, but are also kind of foundational for a lot of things that come up. In addition, they're foundational for most of the argument that I've been making with you today. Because God is giving, if you read the first couple of verses, God is giving man here, our, our relationship with the animals is changing from what it was. And, and we now have permission to eat the meat of the animals for the first time. So why in verse 4, why in verse 4 does God prohibit us from eating or drinking the animal's blood? Now, you might be thinking, who cares, right? Because it's gross. Because m- most Americans, we don't ever think of eating or drinking blood. We don't, we're not like in Scandinavia where they have blood pancakes all the time and in, in England where they have blood pudding. And England, pretty much all the food in England is gross as far as I can tell, but, but, but they have that. <laughs> can we edit that? Never mind. Um, <clears throat> but we, don't, we tend to think that blood is, is kind of nasty. So we don't really think about this a whole lot, but it's an important passage. Verse 4 is actually the first statement in the Bible of the much-repeated principle that the life of every living being is contained in its blood. Now, biologically, that makes some sense, of course, but, of course, the deeper meaning here is symbolic. To eat or drink the blood of another creature was to consume its very life, which is something human beings are not authorized to do because we are not the Lord of life. We are not in charge of giving and taking life. And as we've been saying up to this point, we do not assign the value of life and we should not attempt to do so. To take charge of life itself is above our pay grade. And so to consume the blood of another creature was to take the place of God because all life flows from God. All life eventually belongs to God. God is the only Lord of life. He just loans it to us. The prohibition here was repeated when you come to the sacrifices later on in the Old Testament. There were certain times that the priests were actually permitted to eat uh, what was brought in to the temple to be sacrificed, the animals that that were brought in to be sacrificed, but the blood always had to be poured out to God at the base of the altar. Why? Why? Because life belongs to God. 
Life belongs to God. But now it goes even a step further than that. And I think this passage is looking ahead to those sacrifices. But now we know what those sacrifices were looking ahead to. One day God himself would pour out his own blood. One day God himself would give up his very life so that sinners like us, liars, thieves, racists, and even murderers, could be forgiven of our sins. Just as here in Genesis 9, where only the loss of a life could make up for the taking of a life, so 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross, the Son of God had to lose his own life. He had to shed his blood, and he had to lose his own life in order to purchase your life and mine back from sin and destruction and death, eternal death. But Jesus went even further than that. And sometimes we forget this. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes one of the weirdest and most radical statements in the whole Bible. He says this, that if anyone wants to have eternal life, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, if that creeps you out, you're in good company. Because after Jesus said this, it says that most of his followers walked away. They were deeply offended. Imagine what it's like for an Old Testament Jew to hear Jesus say that, knowing what he knew about the Scriptures all the way back to Genesis 9 and how abominable it was to eat or drink blood. What is Jesus talking about? He was talking about life. He was talking about his life. The life is in the blood. And one of the strangest, most mysterious, most beautiful, and most powerful truths of Christianity is this, that Jesus not only gives his life for us, but he also gives his life to us. He not only gives his life for us, but he puts his life in us. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, he puts his spirit, his Holy Spirit, within your heart, within your life. And as you grow in the knowledge of Christ, the Holy Spirit takes the very life of Jesus and puts it into your life. The faith of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, the thought patterns of Jesus, the love of Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. Nothing less than having the life of Jesus, which was poured out for you, then poured into you. Poured into you day by day as you follow Him. It's more than just becoming a better person. It's becoming a whole new person, and Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that that new person that you've become is itself being renewed day by day in the knowledge and image of its creator. That's the Christian life. The Lord of life. The Lord of life, Jesus himself, is the one who defines life and gives it its value. He gives you your value. No one else has permission to give you value. And no one else has permission to take away the value that God has put in you, given you. But then Jesus goes two steps further. He gives his own life for us. And he puts his own life in us. Let's pray and then we'll sing one last short song.